Hi, everybody. This is Chuck Sype. Uh, welcome back to another episode of Schoolhouse Rocks. I'm joined today by a bunch of my esteemed colleagues here from the Roxbury School District who I'll invite to introduce themselves so we can talk about what is a really interesting topic for us and something that we hope will provide uh, anyone who's listening some information about kind of those around them and the experience other people have as a part of their journey um, through life and as, as a part of the human condition. So before we get started, I would invite my guests to please introduce themselves. Hello, everyone. This is Frank Santori, your proud superintendent here in Roxbury Public Schools. I am looking forward very much to this discussion. Prior to joining the district, I served as the assistant superintendent in Madison, where I oversaw specialized services and oftentimes interacted with uh, neurodiverse populations. So this is a topic that's very important to me, and I'm really honored uh, to join the discussion today. I'm Amy Gallagher. I'm the director of special services here in Roxbury, and I'm really looking forward to this conversation um, for us to weigh in um, on this because I know, you know, I see what's going on in social media, and I know that there's a lot of talking points, and I think it's important that, you know, uh, parents, family, staff all hear from um, the people within the district so that you can get our insights, our knowledge, our um, even opinions on some of this. Um, I think that that's really important for us to be talking about. Hi, everyone. I am Jen Perez. I am one of the behaviorists in Roxbury School District. Um, I'm excited to be a part of this conversation as well. I think, um, you know, there's this conversation is something that's uh, sort of blowing up in social media. I'm told anyway, I, I don't spend much time <laughs> on social media myself, but I'm glad to be a part of the conversation. All right. So th there you have it. That's our topic for today. We're going to talk about neurodiversity, um, which is definitely emerging, not only in educational circles as a main conversation, but also just really kind of a social dialogue. Um, and I think it really is a part of a larger construct at, that we as humans are just engaging in to grow in our appreciation for others. So if we just start by deconstructing the word neuro, brain, divergent, meaning takes all kinds, a little bit different than me, different than you. We're all unique. Um, and so we we are really comfortable speaking about diversity in a variety of different ways over the last, I'll say, decade. Um, even before that, right? Go to something really simple like biodiversity, right? If our planet were not biodiverse, we would really struggle to exist as, as humans. Uh, so you go real simple. And no one really has concerns about that. We know that even we need a diverse diet, you know, like so we have this this word as a part of our our comfort level really exists in certain areas. Um, you know, I've been really excited in educational spaces and just social spaces that the diversity amongst humans in general has become something that people have embraced as a part of our conversation. But I think one of the, you know, kind of last areas that we need to embrace in this space is neurodiversity. And I think part of the fear, maybe it's not fear, maybe it's trepidation, maybe it's um reluctance is because people aren't really comfortable or confident in how the brain works because that really gets super scientific. And so neurodiversity really just speaks to the fact that there are variations in mental functioning. There are variations in how the brain works. And uh, I'm going to lob one up here for you. We, we need to deconstruct that there's a normal way for the brain. Which normal is a setting on a dryer, right? <laughs> <laughs> 
All right. So we, we, we practiced that one in advance. Yeah. So we're going to open with that. <laughs> let's, let's move into a little bit more uh, open-minded language and call that typical, right? So we have like kind of this typical structure of how we think the brain functions. But uh, in my opinion, that typical nature is diverse, right? Brains function differently, period. And so let's just get into that first, right? So how do we as educators understand, how do we as people understand and embrace the fact that brains work differently? What does that mean? What are some examples? So I think from my perspective, this whole idea of um, neurodiversity originally, when it, when this first became a topic of conversation um, lots of years ago now, I want to say 90s, um, was really focused on the autism community. And since then, that has really expanded to include, um, you know, a number of sort of neurodivergent um, profiles, for lack of a better term. And, you know, what what I think is is really cool about this sort of movement, if you want to call it that, um, is that it does it does seek to be more inclusive. You know, I remember um, way back when um, one of my supervisors telling me, if you met one person with autism, you met one person with autism, right? Everybody's um, brains work a little differently, and that's what's so awesome about um, this this sort of idea. Um, and, and that's really, I think what kind of goes hand in hand with the field of ABA and I don't want to jump ahead, but I know that's something we're going to be talking about as well is looking at those individual differences. Yeah. So I think that's going to be probably more the focus we go into today, but it is important to recognize as we talk about, um, a variety of brain functions, you know, we hear other acronyms in education and just kind of as parents and family members, community members, ADHD, we hear about, you know, youngsters and people who have dyslexia, dyscalculia, you know, there's such a variety of different um, things that we hear about people. And all of that kind of falls under the umbrella of neurodivergent. And in fairness, like I would say, I guess if I were probably a child these days, you know, I, I kind of snicker as I'm saying this because anyone who knows me would agree, you know, like <laughs> I would probably be diagnosed with ADHD. I grew up in a time when that wasn't the case. And um, one of the things that I think is really neat, although we're going to really dive deep into autism and ABA and how all of this fits together today, that's really going to be our focus. One of the things I think is neat to consider is teams and people working together on things, whether it's a task in school, whether it's a task around the house, whether it's just any a team of any nature, having that diversity, that diversity in thinking, that diversity in perspectives makes the team stronger. If everyone thinks the same way, if everyone behaves the same way, there are real limitations that are in place on that team, whether we recognize them or not. And so part of what we want to achieve here is an, an, an increase in appreciation for what makes us all unique and different because it gives us the opportunity to be better as individuals. It gives us the opportunity to be better as a group, as a community. Um, and so part of that just takes an understanding, right? People are fear people fear what they don't understand, right? It's just kind of human nature. So that's what we want to get across today. So let's go into that a little bit with... ABA and how do we support, where does, what does that fit in supporting youngsters who are identified as being on the autism spectrum? It's a spectrum. What's that mean? So I'm going to invite the three of you who are really the experts in this space to start to break that apart before we move on. I think it'd be good just to define ABA as applied behavior analysis. I think oftentimes in education, we speak in acronyms and we don't take the time to explain what they would be. So, you know, my experience uh, working uh, with children with autism and ABA specifically began a number of years ago when I worked as a school psychologist. And I began to work with young children with autism, children turning three. And we were 
uh, attempting to devise programs that met their needs. And we obviously turned to the research, and there's a whole host of research that speaks to the efficacy of ABA as it pertains to uh, educating individuals with autism, understanding that each individual is different, but the hallmarks of applied behavior analysis, which is a very large instructional umbrella with many components, really lend themselves to positive outcomes later on. And what I was struck with was how ABA differed so vastly from traditional instructional methodology really looking at the systematic nature of ABA as it compared to more traditional classroom functioning. The reason being that the uh, presentation, the learning style of those uh, youngsters with autism really required a real uh, contrast in terms of approach. And so when you look at the uh, neurodivergence of that population versus um, students who have more traditional learning style, you would see that obviously the instructional methodology had to change as well. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, sort of looking at um, our ABA or our Applied Behavior Analysis Program here in the district um, and how that kind of applies, I mean, it, it's not a one-size-fits-all, right? Mm-hmm. So so the instructional methodologies certainly are different um, than what you would see in a sort of a, a regular gen ed classroom. Mm-hmm. Um, each individual student, you know, we're, we're constantly assessing what are their strengths? What are areas of need for them? And how can we sort of build off those those strength areas to help that individual child? The the goal isn't to, you know, fit them into a box and make them, um, you know, look like or behave like their their quote unquote typical no. typically developing peers, right? It's it's, you know, how can we sort of build their skills and, um, you know, help them in some of those areas that are areas of need for them. Mm-hmm. Can I just jump in there? Sure. So I'll be the person who doesn't know nearly as much as you all, uh, which would be abundantly clear. Um, so as you're talking about applied behavioral analysis and emphasizing, and I appreciate you both kind of said this in your own way, it's not about one size fits all. It's not about trying to force or move a youngster to be more like typically developing peers. But from my understanding, and please fill in the gaps here, it's about supporting the understanding of routines and helping the individual really figure out how they interact with the world around them through use of reinforcement skills and strategies. And so how does that translate in a classroom and how does that impact the individual student as they interact with peers who also may be anywhere in the arena of neurodiverse, closer to what we would consider to be typically developing and a student anywhere in between. Right. So I think, um, you know, again, back to the I, the understanding that autism occurs sort of on a spectrum. You met mm-hmm. one person with autism, you met one person with autism. So we have individuals with autism um, in, in specialized classrooms that really uh, use a lot of um, teaching strategies and interventions that come from the field of ABA. Um, we have individuals with autism in gen ed classrooms and and everywhere in between. Mm-hmm. And so what they need and what those supports look like are really so highly individualized. It's it's almost difficult to answer a question like that in um, an ABA classroom. If that's what we're specifically looking at, we're really, um, you know, if, if we find an, an individual that. Um, would benefit from that type of instruction, then we're looking closely at what specific skills that individual may need to work on. Um, And then we're breaking those skills down the same way we do for every student. We break skills down 
for some individuals, those skills might need to be broken down further and they might need to have more repetition of a particular skill while contacting reinforcement in order to um, acquire those new skills. The, the goal of the program overall, it, it's, it's a verbal behavior program. So mm-hmm. we're looking at functional communication. How can we support these individuals to um, be able to communicate their wants and their needs? So it, it really is so highly individualized. And then the, the goals themselves are um, to, to build on their skills to um, help them to self-advocate and, and all of these other things. I would say that you're absolutely right in terms of that. And when I think back to my days as a direct practitioner, providing social skills instruction, you know, researching the best practices, working with children who were more impacted by their uh, learning needs, it required a very different approach than I would have provided to a student who maybe had a learning disability. And so approaching the task from a very discrete, systematic fashion lended itself to better outcomes for those particular students. But it was a totally different approach and one that I had to take time to kind of internalize before I implemented. And you see the the difference in understanding and perspective, but what was so unique and really inspiring was the rate of skill acquisition, right? Because that isn't going to differ. It's the methodology that we use, but the students who have a neurodiverse profile still acquire skills mm-hmm. at a very high rate. Absolutely. Well, and I like that you emphasize that, as you said at the end, that the skills acquisition happens at high rate. <clears throat> and you could say, you know, back to the point that we're all in many ways neurodiverse. We all think differently. We all respond differently than one another, um, regardless of how overt or covert that might be. And so recognizing that skills acquisition happens differently for everyone, it's something that was said previously is one of the things we're trying to do here in the school, which transfers out beyond the school walls, is breaking down skills into small steps with the with the hope of moving towards the attainment of a goal, right? Which moves towards proficiency and automaticity, right? Which is kind of, I could use that same piece. I could grab that soundbite and use that to describe how we teach students to add, how we teach students to read, how we teach kids to drive, right? Like that's kind of the same progression. So the reason I'm trying to make that connection is to recognize that learning happens with a very similar structure. It just needs to be um, tiered and individualized. Back to a comment from before, it's not a one-size-fits-all. Learning isn't for anybody. Um, And part of what a school system is trying to do is break down systemic barriers to help youngsters find ways to grow in that proficiency so that they can move towards a healthy adult life or even from our youngest learners. And you even talked about, you know, how do we function? One of those first steps is how do we functionally communicate needs, wants, uh, because that's how we interact with those around us. So, you know, what, um, what are some ideas of what's that, what does that specifically look like? Right. So we're kind of, let's take it down a level. uh, You know, if we're, as we're describing what ABA is now, let's get down into a, you know, kind of the next level, which is what's that kind of look like in practice and how do we structure that so that students can meet those goals and so students can grow and be successful in the attainment of those skills? Uh, so um, when I'm looking at, you know, specifically uh, the programs here in the district, um, when a student first comes in, um, we're performing an individual assessment. Um, we we typically use uh, the ABLES or the AFLES, which the ABLES is the assessment of basic language and, and learning skills. Um, And that assessment looks at over 500 skills um, across 25 different skill repertoire areas um, that looks at 
primarily language skills um, and sort of learning to learn skills. Um, it's a really cool assessment. It really gives you this very um, detailed picture of exactly where the learner is and and what sort of barriers we need to work on um, as, a, as in the environment to remove to um, or or to rearrange to help that student to sort of acquire those skills. Um, so the idea is not, you know, and I think this is one of the criticisms out of this neurodiversity movement. The idea is not to, you know, make the child appear more typical. It's, it's to give them the skills to be able to communicate mm -hmm. and, and, um, how do we go about doing that? And so this assessment really gives us the, the bare bones kind of where we need to start, um, and how we need to progress. It, it outlines what those goals are short-term and long-term long term, and how we need to progress to um, sort of fill in some of those, um, those skill gaps that currently exist in their language and learning profile. And I think one of the, the important things to note as we go through this process, and for those that need um, the level of specificity that exists within the ABLES, um, it, it's a lot more obvious but we do this throughout um, our processes in the classroom through the IEP process um, is we really look at the ramifications of not acquiring these skills. So, for example, you look at, at certain behaviors and there might be something about, um, you know, transportation or communication. And if that isn't necessary in the child's um, larger picture life, if that's not a skill that's required um, to be met with success beyond the school building, then those are those are things that we consider in terms of how much time we want to focus in on any of those areas, especially when we're looking at behaviors and we're looking at, okay, what behaviors are appropriate and are not appropriate we're really looking at what is the reaction to that behavior? What is important to that student? If a student is is very fueled by or, or very motivated by social interaction and what might be seen as um, typical social interaction amongst peers, then that might be something that we focus on more so than other students that that really isn't impacting them in their daily lives. Yeah, I think that you're absolutely right. I would say one of the things that uh, Jen touched on before is this idea of you know, we're not trying to work towards a level of typicality for all students. What we're working towards is them having a functional means mm -hmm. of expressing their needs, wants, and their talents, right? right? And celebrating those talents. And I think back to 15 years ago within the field of ABA, we were working on programs for eye contact, right? not recognizing right. that the, that it's was uncomfortable. not, it was uncomfortable right. and it did not equate to a student's availability to learn, right. to comprehend, right. or if to engage. A ben right? No benefit, right? Correct. Yeah. So, yeah. so can I just jump in there real fast? <clears throat> and frequently, I just want to go right to what you just said about the comfort level, um, you know, as where we started once upon a time working, focusing on things mm -hmm. like eye contact. That really came out of the fact that I'll use, I'll say me, I'll be the community. It's more comfortable for me if you right. make eye contact with me. So the teaching structures that were being implemented were more about everyone else, not the, not the youngster we were working with. Right. And so that's why we started to make transitions away. And so I'm gonna grab another piece of this puzzle here, which is we all have unique comfort levels with those around us um, based on how we interact. And I'll give you a perfect example. Like, I'm not like a huge hugger, right? Like people are like, give me a hug. I'd really <laughs> rather you not. Um, whereas there are other people like who want to hug all the time, right? 
Eye contact is really comfortable for some people. Other people, it is not. Um, I was a kid who sat in class. I was a tapper, right? Like I tapped my pen uh, and it drove everybody around I'm me sure nuts. I'm sure your teachers love that. No, and no one. In fact, I, don't, I don't actually remember anyone who loved it. Um, but it also go, that this all goes into a bucket of like sensitivities. Um, and as people, we all have unique sensitivities that we, I'm going to use the same word and I hate it that I can't think of a different one. We sometimes lack the sensitivity to be sensitive to other people's sensitivities. And I'll give you a perfect example, right? We all know someone who like chews kind of with their mouth open. Mm -hmm. We know someone who may not shut the door all the way. They don't put the garbage can lid down. Um, you know, I those feel like are, we're just getting a glimpse into Chuck, uh, Dr. Sykes' yeah. life a little that bit. That is the not true. Inner workings of Chuck um, Maybe true, maybe not true. Um, a lot here I plead the fifth. But um, sometimes people, you know, we, you know, they like to hold hands. They like to be touched. Other people don't. So how do we grow in a sensitivity and understanding that just because someone may have a different uh, um, preference than ours? It's not more or less, back to the word from the beginning, typical, right? We need to move away from the idea that there is a normal way to interact with people, right? And embrace the idea that it is typical. Um, if people don't fit that typical mold, how do we grow in a sensitivity for that and an understanding without getting upset? If someone's like, can you please chew with your mouth shut? Like, how do we not be like, well, that's who I am. It's what I do. How do we appreciate and recognize both that there are two sides to that and that certain people's sensitivities are much higher than others? And also, I'm going to throw a third thing in here before I pass it back to you guys. As a school, we're working on supporting students with how they interact with others in that way, in expressing their sense, but also being sensitive to the needs of others. I think for, you know, for school staff, it's always helpful to sort of look at it through the lens of, you know, what's what how does this benefit or disrupt a classroom when you're when you're talking about specific behaviors like that Dr. Santora had mentioned uh, you know the eye contact before and it was something that the field you used to work on and then we kind of realized that what what is the benefit of this so you know when I when I think of my own like conduct and ethical guidelines and and those you know as a BCBA but also those working in a school district and you're looking at the individual student Sure, we could there we could employ different interventions to get a student to chew with their mouth closed, but is there any benefit to that? How does that positively impact that particular child? And I think, you know, looking at any behaviors, even if it's something that annoys you, sort of from that lens of, you know, do is this something that that benefits this person to change? And I and I think it's about looking at the the individual the benefit to the individual. Yes. So a number of years ago, too, we saw the onset of more acceptance of flexible seating, right, in schools for all learners. And uh, the idea that I remember working with a group of teachers many years ago about a youngster who really preferred to stand while he did his work. Yes. Uh, and that was a hard uh, thing for people to understand. But now many of us have standing desks. Absolutely. Right? And the reason being, it facilitates further engagement. Mm -hmm. It's unique to the person, but it didn't fit what we used to understand as appropriate. So I think it's really being willing to accept the unique uh, nature of in each individual, whether they have a yes. documented learning challenge or not, right. and being able to kind of flex our space, so to speak. So Yeah. And, and you know, I, I look at the benefit to all students, you know, oftentimes this conversation on neurodiversity is partnered with um, a conversation um, in the autism community. 
And when you think about, you know, autism on a spectrum and, and you broaden that and you look at everything being on a spectrum and our willingness to kind of look around and look at sensitive, you know, being sensitive to the needs of others and, you know, acknowledging that, you know, they're trying to be sensitive to your needs and there's a happy balance and all of that. I think that that benefits all of our students, Mm -hmm. you know, speaking to the standing desk, um, you know, I think if just looking at the, the environment that we create for our students and the instructional methodology that we provide to our students, um, and being willing to recognize that, you know, like there, there are best practices and there is research to support these things, but that doesn't mean that that is that best practice is going to work for all students right. and really looking at those students as individuals and, and being willing to kind of think out of the box a little bit in terms of, you know, what are we doing? Is it really is it really benefiting um, that individual in the, the larger picture of what their life is going to be? Um, you know, I think it's exciting that, you know, this is the conversation that we're having um, I think it again, it benefits all students. Mm-hmm. so as as you guys continue to reference the interactions and the preparations we have with students, part of that overall goal, regardless of the individual needs of any learner, um, during their journey here in our district, we are kind of focused on the same outcomes, right? We call that a portrait of a graduate, and I'm not trying to work that in, but it was just easy right there. Um, because we do have these overarching goals that really are more about a successful adult life, a fulfilled adult life. Uh, and certainly within there, there are constructs of learning that we hope youngsters accumulate. But during that journey, students also demonstrate and exhibit various behaviors. Um, and sometimes those also deviate from what many would consider to be typical, particularly in a social setting. Um, certainly in the privacy of our own homes and things like that, you kind of let your hair down a little bit, right? You kind of, but when you're out in public, we're out in, um, in a shopping mall, we're in a supermarket, we're at the movie theater, we're out to dinner, things like that. Uh, in that social setting, there are norms of behavior that are commonly accepted. And when an individual demonstrates something that may not align with that, it makes, you know, back to a comment from board, it makes many people uncomfortable, um, and so let's talk a little bit about that. Um, and then we're going to get into some tips, right? So let's start with, you know, what's, why is that? Why, why do individuals demonstrate behavior that may deviate from what is typically customary and acceptable in public? Um, and if you're a friend, a parent, um, a neighbor of someone in that situation, or even a stranger encountering someone who is, who is exhibiting behaviors that may deviate from what you would expect or anticipate, how do you respond? So let's, why does that happen? And then what are some tips we can use for, that we can provide people about how to interact in that space appropriately? So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring up a pet peeve of mine, um, which is, and I think you're kind of touching on, on some of this, um, and that, that's referred to oftentimes as self-stimulatory behavior, which is definitely a pet peeve of mine um, <laughs> because you're, you're, as a behaviorist, I'm, you know, you're assigning a function to it. We don't know that it's self-stimulatory behavior. It looks different, but there could be, you know, different reasons for it that are not self-stimulatory behavior. Um, so what I, the way I refer to it as a behaviorist is automatically reinforced behavior is kind of what we're talking about. Um, so you might see, um, I, you know, I have a lot of, of my own behaviors that are automatically reinforced. I twirl my hair constantly. If I'm sitting at my desk, I'm twirling my hair. 
Chuck is a, I, a tapper. I, I because I can't twirl my hair. <laughs> Twirling my hair out of the question. Right. So, you know, when I get home from work every day, the first thing I do is I put on jammies and, you know, the, my comfy clothes and I my hair comes down if it's up and I have my home glasses, which are hideous. They don't leave the house, but they're a little more comfortable. Um, so we, the point is that, you know, we all, we have these behaviors and, and I think, um, you know, they're, they're fine. And again, looking at it in a school system, in a classroom from that lens, what we're concerned about is does this disrupt learning, right? So is this, so I'll give an example, um, from a student I worked with several years ago who, um, she engaged in a lot of, um, hand play for lack of a, a better way to put it. Um, but she would interact with her hands quite frequently. She would talk and, and make her, her hands have voices. And, and that was how she engaged in play. And there was absolutely nothing wrong with that. Um, the issue became when she was struggling to not do that during learning activities. And it was becoming something that was disruptive to others. Um, and then became led to self-injurious behavior and severe aggression um, when it was when she was not allowed to engage in that behavior. So there are absolutely times that it is appropriate to um, to teach replacement skills. That's our our first go to right is not to just stop a behavior because we don't like it or it looks weird. But it's to first understand why is that behavior happening? Is it automatically reinforced or is it something else? Um, and really rearrange the environment to support that individual. And and when it does become something that's so severe, um, to teach them, okay, here are the times it's appropriate. Here are the times we need you to be engaged in something else. We need your, your hands to be busy writing um, and your voice to be busy answering questions um, not engaged in this other behavior. So so I think that, you know, in a school system, that's how we kind of support some of those types of behaviors. And I would say I've seen, you know, I've my time in, in Roxbury's been just a f- few months at this point, but it's been very enjoyable. But I, I certainly have a, a background in this in my prior roles. And I've seen it work well when we try and shape the behavior to something that's functional for the learner where I've seen it become more difficult and we try and shape the behavior to what we believe to be more appropriate for the learning setting because those are two different pathways, right? Mm -hmm. Because we always have to think about how does this um, automatically reinforcing behavior benefit the learner and what can we do to shape that to still be beneficial but be less disruptive. Absolutely. And I just want to jump in there and the logic that is often used to what you just said, Dr. Centora, is that we reframe that thing about those around us, not about that individual student. Mm-hmm. The reason, the rationale, if we want to boil it down to the simplest way to put it, is, is a very cavalier, well, that's not how the real world works. And the <laughs> truth is, one, that is that youngster's real world, mm-hmm. right? Like It's not some made-up world, that's that youngster's real world. But the other piece of it is we need to, we as larger community, both locally and beyond, need to understand that the real world needs to be something we can all operate in. And if, and I guess the kind of question I will ask, you know, family members, friends, when these sorts of conversations organically appear is, how is that person impacting you at all? Right. And so, you know, you, you use the example of, you know, someone talking with their hands like if they're doing that, while it may not be something that everyone engages in, it's not impacting me whatsoever. Right. And right. in fact, could be fun. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, and so I think that's that's a very um, reckless excuse for saying, well, that person should be more like me 
and what I expect, as opposed to an appreciation and understanding like, I may not think or behave the way that person does, but one, what they're doing does not impact me in the slightest. Two, not just throwing it away because that's not, quote, how the real world works, because that is that youngster, that individual's real world. And I think it's important to grow in that. So it kind of leads to the second part is like, well, what strategies can we give, right? You're out in public. Um, you're, maybe let's start with, I'm a parent, I'm a parent of two children and they were young and they're growing up and periodically you come across someone else and children point when they're curious, people, children stare when they're trying to learn and those behaviors themselves are not really socially acceptable, right? What right. do we say to a kid? Don't point, stop staring. Mm-hmm. They're learning, they're trying to understand the world around them and adults do the same thing, right? If they see something that is curious to them, they're going to stare. They're and in truthfulness, they're trying to learn. They're not often what is perceived as making fun of someone, but they're trying to learn. They're trying to in, engage in the environment around them. So, what strategies could we give friends, families, if strangers, like how to appropriately respond if you encounter someone who may not behave or think the way you expect them to? Well, I, you know, I, I'm going to turn this over to you, but I I do want to just note that I think. Um, to stop the conversation, to to quiet anyone down, that equates that the behavior is is negative, it is bad. And so I think, you know, really importantly, we need to be talking about these things with with our children, with our students, um, because I think the more we talk about it, the more we grow in understanding um, and the more we can appreciate the differences that exist in life. Um, I want to focus on the, the what a stranger can do. Yeah, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. I think keep on moving. Yes. Mind your business. Keep yes. on moving. I've had so many parents say to me that they don't want to leave the house because they struggle. Their child struggles and they are embarrassed and they feel judged and, you know, everything else. And so I want to empower parents to just tell them, keep on moving. Don't, you know, this is something I'm dealing with. Thank you for your your concern, but I got it. Um that's not easy for a, for a lot of people to do. I get that. Um, but if if any stranger is listening to this and you observe something in a restaurant or a grocery store and you're passing judgment, just please keep on moving. That's my advice. <laughs> and, and that really is great advice, you know. Um, but to, even to Amy's point too, right? One, mm-hmm. move along. Two, um, don't, don't impart on others that that thing is wrong, right? Yeah, so I just want to throw absolutely. an asterisk even as I hear myself speaking. Certainly, there is a tolerance level for, right? Someone can't just come up and hit you and you're like, oh, it's okay. Don't Absolutely. worry about that, right? Like, there is a tolerance level for us humans. We interact with one another. Um, but at the same t- at the same time, um, teaching inadvertently teaching your own children or those around us, like, well, that thing's wrong. Don't do that thing. Some, part of the solution sometimes is just move along. Mind your business. I Absolutely. like the way you said that um, because it's true. It's direct. <laughs> yeah. And, um, you know, being direct is sometimes the best way to handle things. And so I do appreciate that perspective. Um, but also growing in an understanding and appreciation for that individual, their family, right? It, it can be embarrassing because people stare, people point, people respond in a negative way. And so being growing in our appreciation and understanding for them and what they're going through, right? Just getting the courage I hate to say it that way, but it's the truth to leave the house, recognizing there might be an incident or an event is taxing enough, let alone the fact that if you have a family member who um, demonstrates or exhibits behaviors that may deviate from the norm or be atypical in that way, sometimes it's hard to just go out on your own, right? Like, Mm -hmm. so if you're the parents, um, how do you get time alone? How do you go out and, and get a sitter who understands and appreciates child? That in itself is incredibly taxing and challenging. So this all comes back to the same theme that is often associated with diversity, which is 
growing in an appreciation and understanding that people are different. Um, we are all unique and deserve to be a part of the world around us and deserve to have an appreciation from others in the same way we would hope to give it to them. You know, and so I, I think that, you know, those are some good ideas. I would give advice, you know, so obviously I agree, echo wholeheartedly. If you're a stranger in the supermarket, keep on moving. But <laughs> if you are a visitor in someone's home, you approach uh, your visitation with the same way you would um, a family with a child without a special need, right? You're a visitor in someone's home. That means you're an observer. You're a receiver of information. You're not an intervener. Oftentimes, more often than not, almost always, the parent knows the child better than anyone else. And so you're going to take the time to see how that child interacts with the parent, see how that child interacts with their siblings, whether there's a, a child with a neurodivergent pro profile or not. So mm -hmm. I would say when you're visiting or if you have a close family member or a friend, be the one that listens and observes rather than intervenes and offers advice. Yes. The well-meaning <laughs> advice. I got a lot of that when I was a new parent. Oh, from, yeah. <laughs> from lots of lots of family members. Yes. 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 All right. I, I think that's a really great way to end. Um, I imagine that this is just the tip of the iceberg, and I think we'll engage in additional conversations on this. So if this is interesting to you, I, I would encourage you to keep an eye out for additional episodes. And, you know, the moral of the story is, uh, there's plenty for us to learn about those around us and grow in our appreciation for for them. And the best thing to do if you're uncertain or unsure about something is the same way you would respond when you're uncertain and unsure about why your dryer is clicking or why your car isn't running. You try to learn more. You seek assistance. You seek to learn before passing judgment. Um, and I think that is really a great way to sum this up. So I'm going to invite you all to share any last thoughts and we're going to get out of here. Um, I, I just want to say that's a really great point, especially since um, we were talking this morning about like watching stuff on TikTok and, you know, sometimes it's really convincing. So just taking the time to um, read up, learn, you know, different, find different resources to help educate, you know, if, if you find your, your, you know, needing to in different areas, I do want to just plug a resource really quickly. Um, in the state of New Jersey, we have, um, a group called POAC. It's P-O-A-C. You can find them, um, on the internet at POAC.net. Um, and they do a lot of really great trainings. It's they're, They have tons of educational resources, community resources, parent trainings. It's a group of parents um, with neurodiverse children. So I think um, it's an awesome resource if if you're looking for, you know, to sort of further your education in this area. Um, and I just wanted to add, you know, I, I appreciate everyone here having this conversation. I appreciate that, you know, we want to share in these conversations with our community um, I, I continue to be impressed by um, what's happening in Roxbury and our willingness and ability to um, talk on these topics that really are, you know, um, part of part of the larger conversations that are going on within our society. And we're not shying away from those conversations we're weighing in. So, you know, I thank everyone for the conversation here and, and for Dr. Sype for kind of leading leading the conversation here. So I want to thank everyone too, and I'm very proud to be part of a district that is having this conversation. I, I do want to specifically thank Ms. Perez, our district behaviors. I've had the opportunity now to work with her in two different districts, <laughs> and I'm very glad she's here, <laughs> and I'm glad to uh, work alongside her and my colleagues here, and I'm looking forward to further discussion on this very important topic. So thank you. All right. Thanks for listening, everybody, and stay tuned for future episodes on this topic as well as many others. We'll see you soon.